1: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris.
2: From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. When people think about the movies, they think of the visuals, the actors, the design, the special effects, the cinematography, the sound design, but the creation of the screenplay is rarely the main topic of discussion. Of course, in the beginning, there was the word, and that word was expanded into a screenplay often referred to as the blueprint for the movie that results, but it's a mistake to think of the script as merely a schematic upon which the movie is based. A great screenplay is also great literature. Though it need not stand the scrutiny of being read like a book, the point of a good script is to engage the reader, weave the movie you want to make into a dreamscape of words on a page, to make said reader, whether it's an actor, a director, a cinematographer, or a producer or studio executive, eager to turn the page and visualize the motion picture in their minds. Good screenwriting is every bit as literary as good fiction writing. You want to hook the reader and pull them deep into the story you have to tell. Some scripts read like a blueprint, most famously the shooting script for the original Alien, which we discussed a while ago with Walter Hill. Some read too much like a novel with descriptions that could never be expressed cinematically. But the perfectly written script reads like the best novels. They could be published and devoured like the best of best-selling books. Frank Darabont has found that sweet spot. The screenplays for his most revered movies as a director, as well as a writer, the Stephen King adaptations, The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile are now available in book form and give you a university course on the process, not only of adaptation from literary works, but on the creation of truly literary but highly readable screenplays that get the green light. We'll talk with Frank and the book's editor, Tyson Blue about a very special life in the cinema. Now available for pre order from Severin Films. The worldwide premiere of the unrated director's cut of Gabe Bartolosa's Skinned Deep, the insane directorial debut of the Frankenhooker brain damage effects artist, which Film Threat calls Texas Chainsaw Massacre meets Brain Damage. Scanned in 2K from the negative and featuring never before seen gore with a host of exclusive special features. Also, the Blu-ray premiere of the director's cut of the grim 1970s Richard Speck story, Born for Hell, scanned from a recently unearthed 35mm protection print. Packed with special features, including testimonies on Speck from filmmakers Gary Sherman, John McNaughton, artist Joe Coleman, and Once Upon a Crime podcaster Esther Ludlow. plus the worldwide Blu-ray premiere of the 1980s exploitation shocker Siege, scanned in 2K from the original negative of both the theatrical and extended cuts. Visit www.severand-films.com. That's www.severand-films.com now that we're based at the Dread Podcast Network, I'd love to bring you up to date on some of the Dread Presents movie releases. Now available from Dread Presents is For the Sake of Vicious, where an overworked nurse returns home to find a maniac hiding out with a bruised and beaten hostage. When an unexpected wave of violent intruders descend upon her home, it becomes a fight for survival. Available on demand everywhere and on Blu-ray. Now available also from Dread Presents, Benny Loves You. Jack, a man desperate to improve his life, throws away his beloved childhood plush, Benny. It's a move that has disastrous consequences when Benny springs to life with deadly intentions. Available on demand everywhere and on Blu-ray June 8th. Coming soon from Dread Presents, Queen of Spades. According to legend, an ominous entity known as the Queen of Spades can be summoned by performing an ancient ritual. Four teenagers summon the Queen of Spades, but they could never imagine the horrors that await them. Available on demand everywhere on June 15th and on Blu-ray June 29th. So check out the upcoming and current releases from Dread Presents now. It's been a while since we've seen each other. You did the original post-mortem TV show 10 years ago.
3: Yes, which was so much fun. And I it was still to this day. I've had two truly great interviewers. Both of them are friends of mine. What does that say? You you, <laughs> and Robert Rodriguez uh, oh. both interviewed me. I'd have to say, don't tell Robert, but maybe I'd have to say a tiny bit. <laughs> you were like like the best. Oh, I'm just I'm fleshing. I'm I may blushing. be, I may be getting myself in trouble or unduly flattering you, but uh, it was a really great interview. So I've been looking forward to this. And do you hear those weird sounds in the background? I do. Excuse me, just one moment.
2: So Tyson, meanwhile, you can tell us about how the uh, how the book came to be.
1: All right. Uh, I was uh, cruising Facebook one day, and uh, my friend Bev Vincent who writes for Cemetery Dance. He took over their Stephen King column uh, after me. Uh, post, or, no, He ma- messaged me and sent me a link to the announcement of the, or of the book. Barry Hoffman, the publisher at Gauntlet, was looking for someone to edit uh, a book celebrating Frank's scripts for the Green Mile and Shawshank Redemption. And because Bev knew that I had worked on the Green Mile doing the Forthcoming making of book, um, thought that I'd be interested in it. So and Barry basically said, you know, send me an email. Let me know what your qualifications are, and um, and we'll see how you like it. But uh, I've always found that a phone call works better. So I called him and uh, made my pitch over the phone, and he. Tentatively offered me the job on the spot, subject of Frank's approval, which we which we got, and then from there it was a matter of pulling together the material, uh, choosing people for interviews and and essays to to go along and to support and expand on the, the stories of these two movies, and then uh, to put it all together. It turned out to take a lot longer than than anybody had expected, uh, and then COVID slowed it down at the very end even more, but I, I think the the end result is something that, that we can all be really proud of. Of course, you, Mick, were one of the contributors, along with Josh Boone and Greg Nicotero, and uh,
2: Proudly included. Right. So Frank, this is much more than just a compendium of these two screenplays. There really is a window into the whole movie making process um, through essays, as Tyson had mentioned. Your writing and your introduction is interesting because its theme is gratitude. Yeah. And the gratitude is expressed to Stephen King, to Castle Rock. Tell me a little bit about the the whole feeling of that these two movies represent to you and the importance to, to your gratitude toward them?
3: Mm. Well, you know, it's, as you go through a career, you have ups and downs, more downs than ups, frankly, because it's Hollywood and, uh, and there will just be more downs than ups. So as you get, you know, later on, you look back when you, when you have enough, you know, distance from it to get a little bit reflective, you, you, you start to really, uh, appreciate that, which was there to be appreciated and which you have appreciated all along, but you realize looking back on certain things, truly how blessed you were, uh, because nobody gets to make a movie, uh, uh, that turns out well, unless you're, uh, enabled to do so, unless you have the, uh, you know, the people behind you, backing you, trusting your creative instincts, being willing to put the money up for you to realize that vision that you have. And and it's so rare in our business to have the kind of creative trust and, and creative freedom that Castle Rock allowed, not just me, but all the filmmakers that ever made a movie with them. And it's, uh, it's kind of sad and, you know, it's, It's kind of a bittersweet thing looking back on it because they're, I'm sure there's still a Castle Rock Productions, but they're not what they were back then, which was a mini major with their own funding and they could greenlight their own movies and they could thereby bless filmmakers like me. And and all wow, we love this script. Let's make the movie.
2: And it all started with Rob Reiner doing Stand By Me,
3: doing Stand By Me,
2: adapting Stephen Stephen King. So suddenly, Four of the best Stephen King movies ever came out of Castle Rock.
3: Yeah, yeah, they definitely had a a, a special relationship with him, Uh, and and indeed, it's because of Stand By Me that I went to Castle Rock when I when I wrote the script. When I finished writing the script, I thought, "Do I want to like you know send have my agent send it out to every studio in town?" Not really. Uh, What I really want to do is I want to make this movie for Castle Rock, and uh, the reason for that was. I thought that if anybody understood the movie that I wanted to make, if anybody got it, it was going to be Castle Rock. Looking at it from a standpoint of the really delicate character driven adaptation that they had done with the body, which became Stand By Me, I thought they'll get it. I, I bet they will get it and indeed uh, that was one of those moments in one's career where your instincts were absolutely correct and uh you know about the business side of things they they really did get it and they really did love it and they they empowered me a basically uh you know a four hire screenwriter a nobody at that point essentially uh to make my movie to make my dream come true and uh if you can't be grateful for that <laughs> then you know you got no business being here you know uh so I wanted to acknowledge finally and publicly the gratitude that I had been feeling for that very special time and that very special place in time that was Castle Rock um I don't I'm certain I couldn't get those movies made today I don't think I could make Shawshank today and I don't think I could make The Green Mile today I don't think- Hollywood would want these movies, um, which is something I mention in the introduction, of course, um, and the fact that there was that time in that place where I got to do that, and they were my patron saints, my Medici's, you know, and they and they let that they they let those movies happen. Uh, it's something I'm very grateful for. I, not just uh, Rob Reiner, who was a, a, a seriously He's a mensch. He's one of the great people I've known in this business. Uh, Liz Glotzer and Martin Schaefer and the other folks there at Castle Rock, they had this wonderful attitude of it's the director's movie. We're gonna let them, you know, as long as you stay within the parameters of budget and schedule, which was a little tricky for me, uh uh that being my first one. Um, and uh you know, there were certain compromises I had to make for schedule, for budget. Uh, And I made them the best way I could, but they were my decisions. You know, they weren't somebody imposing
2: creative choices on the director, as happens so often. Um, Well, in the case of Shawshank, you went in there with a powerhouse script that people, everyone who saw it, loved it and wanted to be a part of it, to the point that the mensch, Rob Reiner himself, wanted to make it yeah um and was prepared to give you a really big check in order to make that movie yeah but you knew that this was special to you
3: it was special to me i I, i'll i'll give you a little actual additional addendum to the whole rob reiner offering to direct its story because i i uh First thing I did when when I got my box of books from Gauntlet, and thank you, thank you, Barry, and for, for the <laughs> box of books, uh, is I sent one to Rob Reiner. Because I wanted, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna praise somebody, if you're gonna thank somebody who had a huge impact on your life, positive impact, you you want them to know it. So I saw so I, I signed a copy to to Rob and I sent it off, and and he he sent me an email, which I haven't responded to quite yet. Um, he sent me an email saying, Well, you know, the reason he read read the script and wanted to consider me to consider letting him direct it is because they had sent it they sent it out to some actors that they had worked with previously one of whom was tom cruise and when tom read the script and really liked it he called rob and said well rob if you're directing they had just done a few good men Right. And had the, the time of their lives working together creatively. They were just a wonderful experience, uh, from what I gather and what I've been told. Uh, and so it was Cruz who who suggested to Reiner, as I just found out, uh, that he see if he can direct it. And uh, that's when that's when the offer was made for me to uh, to just sell them the script. And as I said in, in my introduction, I, I I thought about it for a day. I kind of I kind of knew, though, even yeah. at the start, that that was I wasn't I was going to say no to it.
2: Well, it was but a I thought about apple. it. It was a big payday. It and was a big apple.
3: Yeah, yeah it's a big payday. And if you're a young screenwriter who's been doing you know um, work for hire on on action movies, and you know not you get credit on one thing but you don't get credit on the other you're you're sort of a lunch pail you know (laughs) writer the idea of wow one of the top directors an a-list director and an a-list movie star wants to do your screenplay was a very attractive one indeed and um so I, i i said it look you know give me 24 hours to think about it but um I, I, I trusted their promise, to uh, Castle Rock's promise to respect my answer if my answer was no. And so I went back the next day and I said, uh, thank you, but no. Um, and uh, they, they, they kept their promise. They were incredibly uh, gracious, um, moral, people with tremendous integrity. And that's why yes. I say Rob Reiner is a mensch and everybody who worked there was, was likewise. They were
2: menschlings. All of them. (laughs) Well, well, let's also talk about the affinity for Stephen King. Mm. People who have worked successfully with Steve want to do it again and again, Mm. as much for the guy as for the material. Uh, You and I have done it multiple times. Mike Flanagan has done it multiple times. And it's when you find that place, that conjuncture where you – you have a meeting of minds and you have an emotional basis and a, a background that seems similar. Mine was very blue collar as his was with a broken family, all that stuff. I mm-hmm. identified so much with his people. Your background was very unique in that you actually immigrated from a horrible political situation, your family. Mm-hmm. So
3: yes. And, and a also, about, and also a broken family and also very blue collar and grew up poor and all that stuff. I think we have very similar backgrounds, yeah. all, all, all three of us.
2: Well tell me what it is about King that works for you. Because I certainly know why I feel a connection to what he does, but tell me those things that do it for you. <laughs> it,
3: it's kind of like when you hear that sort of perfect joke, really perfectly well told, and you can't wait to try and tell that joke yeah. the next time you're with your friends, you know, uh and hope to get the same reaction. That's kind of what adapting a movie is, isn't it? Really? If you've found a story that really speaks deeply to you. Yeah. Uh and it's been said many times in many ways, but Steve has an incredible knack, a very he's a really human storyteller. And he really makes you, he takes you on that journey in the skin of the people that he's writing about. Um and you try you cry their tears and you laugh their laughter and you you experience the same anxiety. He's just so good at putting you in the skin of those characters and challenging them in often life, uh, uh, life, life, uh, uh, threatening ways and, 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 and redeeming them in, in life, uh, redeeming ways. And he's just a hell of a storyteller, man. He's, he's just one of the, he's one of the gold standard guys.
2: Yeah. What I, one of the things I find so fascinating about his work is the ability to share human pain, to mm. make it, Feel like it's your own. Yeah. And, you know, as much as we have senses of humor and like to make people laugh and scare people and the like, there's nothing trickier or more rewarding than to have an audience feel the pain and maybe express the tears of emotion while they're experiencing a story you're helping Mm -hmm. to Mm
3: tell. It's so true. That's so true. So, you know, if I'm (laughs) <laughs> I've actually had that thought when 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 those occasions when I've been in a movie theater watching my movie with an audience and hearing them react um and cry those tears and somebody somebody off in the corner starts <laughs> sobbing or whatever i always feel i always feel tremendously um I always feel tremendously gratified, of course, but on the other hand, I feel like a bit of a fraud because it's like, you know, if it weren't for, these are actually Stephen King's tears being cried right now. They're not really mine. You know, Uh, all I did was tell that joke again and I got the same laugh. Right. Right. Uh, So, but God bless him. I mean, you know, some, there are just some storytellers who resonate with you it's a harmonic thing it's like the tuning fork and it's just it's perfect kind of a pitch perfect you know it's 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 vibrating at the same frequency that you are and and that's what steve has been for for me you know
2: well even from the very beginning the first your first directing was uh the dollar baby of the woman in the Mm. room yeah and and that surely had an influence of the direction the course of your career would take, which was at first in horror movies and action movies and the like, but turned a corner. You went into the majestic and and not just things that were horrific or fantasy-oriented, but much more earthbound, but had a sense of formalism. And then you did episodes of The Shield that seem to free you you up of your directing style. You had a very formalist style of making movies, you know, dollies and very glacial, not glacial, but, but smooth and formal uh, um, graphics and the like. And suddenly you're working with handheld cameras and your next movie, The Mist, expressed a lot of this filmmaking revolution or evolution.
3: Yes. Well, and, and thanks to Sean Ryan for giving me that opportunity, uh, to come and do an episode of his show. Uh, that was so, it was like, it was like, you've been wearing a tuxedo, you know, like really just like tight, you know, starched clothing, you know, for, for, for so long. And you finally get to take that off and put on some, you know, put on a loose t-shirt and some jams and some Uh, (laughs) flip-flops. It was so awesome to, to, to cast aside that formalism. And I realized I needed to do that with the mist um, because uh, nobody was going to uh, finance the movie uh, beyond a certain number. Right. Nor, nor should they. Right. Um what was really fascinating about that experience was when uh uh Dimension Films Bob Weinstein said uh okay, go make your movie. We've got this much money <laughs> and it's half of what you know, you're the budget that we had been working with is it's half of that budget. Uh, so it'll be half the schedule you've ever had before. And it'll be half the budget. And I, I remember I actually got in touch with Steve King and I said, Steve, what do you think? This is going to wind up being um, kind of a Hail Mary pass because it's I have to shoot it super quick and super cheap. And he said, go for it it'll be great.
2: <laughs> yeah. This is
3: one thing I love about Steve. He's always so, his optimism is so encouraging. And well, he's
2: a cheerleader. He's, he's a, a
3: cheerleader. An
2: amazing cheerleader. Yeah.
3: And uh, it was, I, I realized that not only was uh, shooting this movie quickly, not only was that, it was sort of a, it was embracing a style of movie that I loved anyway, which which you and I grew up with, which is yeah. the low budget. You make the best of it, and some of those movies are gems, right? Like Night of the Living Dead, or I mean, the original Mad Max, uh, which I think George Miller shot for three hundred thousand dollars. You know, you you take what you got and you make the best of it. And I thought, let me embrace that approach. And then God bless uh, Sean Ryan because uh, that was that was literally the style I needed to shoot in order to make that schedule. And I borrowed his camera operators, uh-huh. but these two camera operators were just brilliant, and we the three of us worked so well together, and it it really made making that movie possible. I I, I borrowed his camera operators, I borrowed his cinematographer, Sean Ryan cinematographer, uh, and we. We shot it kind of like an episode of The Shield, and it really wasn't just a, a concession to budget and schedule. It was also, as it turned out, I think the right stylistic
2: choice a for how great to shoot. Stylistic choice. It, it was loose and it moved and it had an energy. And when you're shooting in one location for eighty percent of your movie, you which can't I tend to really, do a lot,
3: apparently. <laughs>
2: yes, you can't really shot list and and do that. You're you're constantly on the move with what your schedules are yeah Uh, you can change it around because you're in one location and you just need that 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 freedom to be unlocked from from the formalism
3: that's right that's right and the only things the only things i did storyboard uh, and shot list in this um, were the action and effects yeah. sequences like the tentacles under the door or the or the crazy you know pterodactyls fly into the market
2: where um, everybody has to be on the same page
3: exactly you have to go in with a plan you can't just make it up uh, the effects people need to know what they're going to be doing and the stunt people need to know what they're doing and, and you need to know what you're doing yes <laughs> you know to actually be able to put that sequence together. But um, even within that context, there was some improvising going on. But the rest of the movie was so very improvised in terms of its camera work. I had two monitors right in front of me, and I was uh, looking at uh, what the two guys were
2: doing. And So you ran two cameras throughout?
3: Two cameras at all times. And it was always handheld or on a pogo stick or on a a butt dolly, you know, shouldered (laughs) up or, you know, they'd like strap it to their head or something crazy. And they were constantly doing the dance with the act and every take, every take was different. So the brilliance of shooting that quickly and improvising the camera work and getting that energy on screen, saving that time on the set. Yeah. You pay for it in the editing room. Because <laughs> yeah. you you don't have four or five takes of the same shot, and then you decide which one's the best, and maybe you'll cut in here or there or whatever. Oh, no. Every shot's different. You got four, five completely different takes on what that camera did in that moment. So, yeah, the editing becomes a challenge. And that's where you really um, – but, but editing time is cheap yes. as opposed to filming time. That's for sure uh, and when you have a, when you have a brilliant brilliant editor like Hunter Vi, who's I, I just I've worked with some great editors in my day Richard Francis Bruce uh, you know I mean just brilliant brilliant people but hunters like my he's, he's like half of my brain somehow. (laughs) Uh, and we've had more, he was also on the shield. I, he's another guy I I took, you know, on their downtime and their hiatus, I took their camera guys, uh, uh, their cinematographer and their editor and uh, Hunter was just fantastic. And, uh, yeah, we 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 went through all the brambles and all the undergrowth and the tangled foliage of that footage, and we we cut a movie together. And it's the shortest movie I've ever done, like an hour. and, and it's six The minutes. most,
2: the most energetic too. Uh,
3: who knew? Who knew I could make something under two hours? <laughs> yeah, it was it was great. I loved it. Um and uh, but and uh, we went on. Hunter and I then went on. Uh, and uh, he did the all the brilliant. Um. Uh, work on the first season of the walking dead right i took i took him on on to that um the camera guys had to go back to the shield
2: (laughs) yeah Well, well you've worked television you've worked independent movies and you've worked studio pictures tell me the pluses and minuses first between the studio i mean i've done that as well but not to the extent that you have the the pluses and minuses of the big studio production and the more nimble independent picture
3: Wow, you know what? I'd rather have to shoot a movie really cheap and really fast, and have the freedom to make my decisions as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, than have all the schedule and all the money in the world, but not, but being that creative straitjacket of being told what to do by people who haven't done your job, have never done your job, right. but are. Champion backseat drivers, um, you know, I, having having a bigger budget versus a lower budget. I, I don't know why, Mick, but I've always felt like the clock was kicking my ass. No matter what, no matter yeah. what the production was, you're always going. How is it possible that I've run out of time? How is it possible I have to like pull stuff out of my script, you know, to make this schedule? It's always been that for me. I've never had the thing where I go. I got all the time in the world. Oh, <laughs> yeah. like, hey, let's not. Don't worry about it. We'll shoot there's it ten ways. Ne- I like don't never. think there's,
2: there's never been a production where people felt they had enough time and money. Oh gosh, there
3: there must have been at some point, and I'd love to know who whose that was and how they pulled it off. But uh, Christopher no, Nolan, maybe. Yeah. There's never ever been. Probably, I, I remember meeting Robert Benton, brilliant, brilliant uh, writer and director. Yeah. At the Berlin Film Festival, where they were screening Shawshank, not in competition, but just as a thing. And I and I walked into the bar and I sat down to get a club soda or whatever. And I realized Robert Benton's sitting next to me. And we introduce each other, you know, we introduce ourselves to each other. And he said, so how do you like directing? And I said, I don't think I want to do this again. It's wow. too, it's, it's so It's so crushing. And he said, I'll tell you why. (laughs) Because he'd done it now at a very high level creatively um, a few times. And he said, you know, as a director, you always show up. You've got the perfect movie in your head. You always show up every day trying to capture that perfect movie that you had in your head. But the clock is always going to peel part of that away. The, the budget, the schedule, always going to steal a little bit of that. And then the accidents will happen. Some of them are happy accidents. You know, some compromises aren't necessarily a bad thing, but then there are the ones that will always hurt, you know? Uh, and then there's the, you know, maybe there's the actor who doesn't quite give you the character that you were hoping for or whatever. He said, yeah, all those, every day of filming feels like a failure were the words out of Robert Benton's mouth. You I walk would, away feeling like, "Oh god, I didn't get that shot. I didn't get that part of the scene. I didn't, but I got to give it up." You know, you make you make those compromises and it does feel like a failure. You just have to what I learned after that, moving on from feeling like I never wanted to do it again, with having done it then a few more times, you realize that if you are if your creative instincts are sound, You know, the story you're telling, you know, your actors are good. You shoot what you absolutely know you need. Anything else is gravy. And if you don't get the gravy, at least you've got what you need and you can cut it. You can cut the movie together. And and sometimes that turns out really well, like Shawshank Redemption. People seem to really love that movie, in spite of the fact that there were a couple of scenes that I never even got to shoot, you know, scenes that I loved that, that, that I had to literally rip out of my script and not shoot. Um, you know and there's a couple of there's still to this day a couple of scenes in the movie where i thought i wish i'd had a little more time to shoot i'm not talking reams of coverage i wish i could have shot one more angle you know because right, there's a right. scene you know there's some scenes in there that could have used it well but, what were the, but that, what doesn't were the that doesn't matter that doesn't matter because the audience doesn't know what's missing the audience exactly. only knows what's there but you know?
2: what were the two scenes that you weren't able to shoot for shasha
3: Oh well, okay. So James Whitmore, sweet, lovely James Whitmore, national treasure James Whitmore, who was yeah. in Them. Yep. I first saw him probably at the age of five in Them, which was on television, and I have loved James Whitmore ever since. I got to work with him twice. What a treasure that is. Um, he um, he lets Jake the crow go out the window when he gets paroled. So. Yeah. Brooks leaves the prison, goes out, has his experience, winds up not ending well for him. Uh, and then we're back in the prison and the guys get the letter, et cetera. There was a scene right after that where they're out in the fields. You know, they're, they're um, excuse me. First of all, Andy comes across a dead crow like a week later in the yard.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And he, and he picks it up and he's going, oh I think this is actually Jake I think this is Jake They determine that it is Cut to this scene where they're all out in those fields and they're all digging and they have this impromptu this little secret burial they, they had they hold a funeral for the bird Wow which is really a funeral for their friend Brooks you know, but they don't have Brooks there. So they're going to, they're going to, they're going to ha- hold it for Jake, you know, and there's a, th- it was a beautiful little scene where they're, you know, out of sight of the guards, you know, they're kind of, they're digging this hole. And then Morgan, the, the Morgan's character had a few words to say, you know, to say goodbye. And it's, it's a scene that on the page brings tears to my eye. And I think, would the movie be better with that scene? Would it be not better? with the scene? Would it be just another scene in the movie? I don't know. But I loved the scene and I never got the chance to shoot the damn scene. So we now presume a fundamental shift of story that Jake flew away and is living happily with his, uh, with his crow friends, as opposed to that was just another foreshadowing of how you can't make it on the outside red. And you're going to have a big problem when you get paroled red, you know, is a, it wasn't just a scene on its own. You're laying more thematic pipe there for what happens later. Um, Never got a chance to shoot that. And um, then there was after Andy's uh, escape, there was another sequence where Morgan Freeman's character has a dream where this hole appears in his cell and he gets sucked through and he's in this limitless landscape, the one that you see at the end of the movie, this, this dreamscape of freedom. And he's terrified of it. And that too was a really cool scene. It was like a kind of a, it was one of those uh, cool, uh, you know, kind of take a chance sort of scenes as a writer, Yeah, you go, yeah, you know what, if, if, if this, if I hit this ball, just right. And it goes over the fence, it's going to be awesome. If not, it'll be on the cutting room floor. Um <laughs> And uh, both of those scenes are in the script, uh, actually in the book as, as published, because yeah. um, I believe in showing people what the script was that you walked onto the set with. You know, I don't believe in, in doing a transcription of the cut and trying to pass that off as a screenplay. That helps nobody. It certainly doesn't help people who want to be screenwriters or want to be filmmakers or directors. It doesn't help uh, students understand. You know, If you're gonna you know, read that script and then watch the movie and go, oh, look at all the little things that shifted along the way. Why? I have an addendum that I wrote explaining scene by scene, Shawshank anyway, not the Green Mile, but Shawshank. Why did that change? Ran out of time? Yep, Uh, didn't have, uh, the extra day to shoot that. Yep, Um, you know, or, or sometimes more minor changes as well, but things evolve that blueprint that is the screenplay evolves as you, as you make the movie. So many people bring their creative instincts into it. The actors are finding the characters. They're no longer your characters really there. They now belong to the actors. So there's a whole layer of things that come in there. I and love all, you know,
2: being surprised by what uh, your your collaborators bring to the show. You it, know, Isn't it we, great? When we were doing the stand, the first guy we auditioned was Matt Frewer for Trash Can Man. Mm. On the page, he could just be a lunatic. But Matt came in and it's the scene with Randall Flagg where he holds out. The flame to him on his cigarette mm. lighter, and it's my life for you. And Matt wow. brought us oh, to wow. tears oh, yeah. with his pathos, and he made it something more than insanity. It was this deeply rooted pain that led to his madness that was expressed so beautifully. And King and I, and our casting director, were all in the room. Very first read of any of the characters, any of the actors for the stand. And it was like, we hired Matt in the room that. Oh, minute. wow.
3: Isn't that exciting when that happens? When but it's, 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 boom, it's right there.
2: So what was it in the beginning? What is it about movies that made you want to make them?
3: Oh, man. Movies, movies, books, music. They were my, and this is a fairly common story. This is not anything unusual. Nobody's going to be surprised, you know, <laughs> but they were an escape from a very difficult childhood. Um, I I learned a lot about the world watching movies uh i learned a lot about you know what's fair and what's not fair fair play you know the golden yeah. rule however you want to put it justice uh, justice ethics morality you 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 know I, I think i think we learned a lot about those things because movies so many movies are really a morality play aren't they um, I, I feel like I, I learned far more about you know um, humanity and decency uh, from movies than I ever did from my own father, mm-hmm. so that was a really great escape. And people, you know, I'm not I'm not the first who talked about getting into that hallowed place of dream, that shared dreams, you know, that connection that happens between you and the storyteller and the cast. And then the audience There's that incredible feedback loop of shared experience and shared, um, you know, just shared dreaming. It's the only form of dreaming that you can do with other people know, yeah. you know the actual dreaming you' you're stuck in your own head and uh, people might show up in that but it's still to you but this is actually a, a, a formalized form of dreaming with other people. It's incredibly exciting
2: yeah, so for me it tell- was an escape. Storytellers get to dream awake yeah. And that's kind of what the job of the movie maker is. Who was that young Frank Darabont who was seeking escape in the movies and in books and in television? Oh, golly. How would I define him best? Um,
3: a bit of a loner.
2: Ah. not unusual <laughs> yeah
3: i know i am laughing because i because i i just thought of uh, like you described me in your uh interview in this book that we're talking about as 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 a recluse did you, <laughs> did you use the r word i think i describing did. me a bit of
2: a recluse
3: <laughs> it's it's so true well i i was i was kind of that as a kid too um but uh you know, I had a tremendously uh, broken family situation, a tremendously uh, unpleasant uh, father
2: mm-hmm. uh,
3: situation. And uh, I was just, I was, I was kind of, I spent my childhood kind of trying to keep my head down, kind of, you know, walking on eggshells quite a lot, keep my head down and find that beautiful landscape that I could escape into and that, and, and books, books and movies and music, music as well. I God, I wish I had any shred of musical talent, but I really
2: don't. (laughs) You're going to master that guitar. I know.
3: Other than to listen, I've got a hell of a vinyl collection here (laughs) and I got, and I got Beatles all over my office. Um, I love me. you know, music is also a form of storytelling and it's one of the most, it's one of the most immediate forms of storytelling. And I wish I had, I wish I had aptitude for it because it, it means the world to me. And it's but, primal. Uh, yeah. It's, it's primal, man. It, it'll plug, right. You know, I I've always said a good song can do and th- to a great song can do in two minutes, what it's taken me two hours to try and do, which is get <laughs> get you to cry a tear, yeah. you know, um, it's so it's 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 haiku in that sense it's like you know okay never mind all this other stuff you know you can make me cry in in five lines of a verse and a chorus are you kidding me uh it's really pretty amazing stuff but uh i would go i lived in those places you know i lived in i lived on mars with ray bradbury and i lived on you know in in the in the desert with uh with T.E. Lawrence and I lived in, uh, you know, I lived under the sea with, uh, uh, you know, Captain Nemo. You know, <laughs> that, that's when you, when you, when your own circumstances are very dodgy and dicey, there's, there's um, this tremendous healing and grace and hope in storytelling. And that's another reason that it's always meant so much to me. And I think it means so much to a lot of people. It's not just distraction. It's not just, hey, let's blow up some stuff for two hours. (laughs) You know, oh, look at this shiny object. No, I mean, when when something actually really is managed to dig deeper than skin deep, it can be very uh, redemptive. Yeah. Very
1: redemptive.
2: Sharing emotion is the hardest thing to convey when you're making a movie anyway, because you're going through a hundred people and studio executives and all of that, because it's just you trying to connect with the guy sitting in the seat in the third Mm -hmm.
3: room. Mm -hmm.
2: Yes. You're trying
3: to connect with the person, the invisible person who's just on the other side of that glass lens. Exactly. It's like a little secret person who's inside that camera. That's who you're trying to connect with. And you're trying to make them laugh or cry or feel something, you know, and maybe there's a kid out there who needs that escape needs to live in your world for a while that you've created, you know, and uh, that's a fantastic privilege and and a huge responsibility. And because it is such a privilege, it keeps you plugging away in Hollywood for years year after year of of disappointments and ups and downs. And, and, you know, at a certain point you might just throw up your hands and go, I I don't even get this business anymore.
2: So have Uh, you thrown up your hands? uh, To a
3: degree. Yeah. To a degree. Um, Tell me about how you reached that, that place. I was, I can't tell you how many times I burned out because I was a workaholic machine for Mm -hmm. 30 years. Um we'll, we'll say 40 years cuz after high school I spent 9 years trying to figure out how to get a career started. I was like mm-hmm. a I was like a guy wearing a blindfold in a dark room with the lights off <laughs> trying to figure out, you know, cuz I wasn't born to this business. I had nobody I didn't even know anybody in this business really.
0: So it took 9 fun.
3: years to, to to even get started. Uh and after that it was 30 years of non-stop deadlines and pressure and mostly disappointments with things not that you pour your you pour your 100% into everything I've never given anything less than my all and so many things just don't happen you hand the thing in and it and, and it's crickets man It's a it tumbleweed rolls by and nothing ever happens and, uh, the and black hole yeah the black hole yeah the development black hole where they're literally stealing years of your life in exchange for paycheck but no actual results mm-hmm. um and then there are the things where oh it did get made too bad it got made so badly <laughs> mm-hmm. you know so the once you have your list of this is what I dreamed of as a kid thinking I want to tell stories, Things turning out right. That's a pretty that winds up being a pretty short list. When the when the other stuff winds up being a pretty long list, you go, <laughs> I've given this 30 years now. I've had 30 years go by in a blur of deadlines and stress, a blur of 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 deadline, stress, and, and broken relationships because you're never available for anybody, because you're always that workaholic machine. Right. I just thought, you know, um, I, don't want, I don't want the next, however much time I've got left, I don't want the next 20 years to go by the same way. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be, you know, nobody ever laid on their deathbed and said, gee, I wish I'd had some more deadlines. <laughs> uh, I wish I'd had some more, you know, work stress. And, and uh, you know, no, they, they always regret not having devoted more to the people they love and to their families. That's, that's the regret. You know, having another, ah, I wish I'd had some more development deals that resulted in (laughs) nothing. You know, that's not, nobody ever said that on their deathbed. So, you know, how are you going to spend the rest of your life? And I, and then I met the, you know, I met the, the girl that became my wife and uh, that just suddenly made sense.
2: That was the last time I saw you was in Austin the day after you got married, Yeah, Robert Rodriguez and I uh, or with you, uh, at the festival there. That's and it funny. was the most amazing dinner. Uh, and I've never seen a happier guy than Frank Darabont was that day.
3: I, well, you're getting me emotional here.
2: That's not a bad thing.
3: When you can, when you can, uh, boy, when you can share that kind of joy with, with, with friends, good friends, people who know what that, that that trench is that trench warfare that you that you've been experiencing for for decades uh you know when you find, can finally share that joy with your friends and and when you know you've found the right life partner yeah wow that's big and that's that was that's a that was a big thing for me because i was i was you know emotionally stunted for you know, by virtue of being this workaholic machine, I was emotionally stunted for most of my most of my adult life and I finally got to the point where I met the right woman at the right moment and I decided, give yourself over to it no matter no matter what, this is now going to be your priority. Yeah. Uh, and that's worked out pretty well.
2: Um, <laughs> it seems wow. like it's worked out great, and wow. I know the feeling. Yeah. Oh
3: God, I, it's <clears throat> it's a hell of a feeling. It's uh, you know,
2: well because, here because all those
3: years of all those years of working, you're you're feeling like you're not, you know, you don't actually, you're not actually doing life. You're right. doing work. You know, you're not actually in the moment of anybody else's. Thing for longer than a few brief glimpses before your next deadline is is cropping up and so after avoiding real life for so long um to embrace it fully and make it the priority I think was a very very good thing so I'm nothing again nothing if not grateful to my wife and to the, the marriage that we've had and um, you know I could probably be a little less of a recluse. Yeah. If I'm if I'm to be honest, you know, I, I uh, having moved out of Los Angeles, uh, you know, I really have become who's the guy who wrote Catcher in the Rye that nobody ever heard of heard from again. Uh, <laughs> you
2: but know. now, you know, you're John Steinbeck.
3: Oh, oh, Steinbeck. I'm living <laughs> in Monterey, of course. Monterey and yeah. Salinas. Oh, yeah. I love it up here. <laughs> so it's such a blessing to be here. And but, not- you know,
2: the time was right. You know, you have a lot to show for an amazing career as a writer and a filmmaker. Mm, And maybe, you know, those are things that will never go away Mm. and will always look to with pride and the experiences that you had with Castle Rock, with King, with Tom Hanks, with all of these people. uh, And, and you're able to collect that experience of what I I'm guessing was the best time of your professional life with Shawshank and Green Mile. And this book is mm. not, it's not just a memory of that, yeah. but it's an elaboration of that.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, get, getting back to the theme of my introduction to that book, what you just said is, is, is a brilliant, thank you for segueing me. You look back on 30 years of that kind of work. You can also look back on 30 years of counting, of blessings to count having done that kind of work. And the blessings to count are, man, I got to work with Tom Hanks. (laughs) I got to work with David Morse. I got to work with Harry Dean Stanton. I got to work with incredible cinematographers and, and camera operators and makeup effects artists and production designer. I got to work with Terry Marsh, man. He worked on Lawrence of Arabia. You know, he was not, he was a production uh, designer nominated for uh, uh, um, Oliver and, and Dr. Zhivago. I got to work with some legendary people, but not just legends, not just heroes of mine, but truly, I, I say this again and again, some of the most amazing big-hearted incredible people that i have met in my life and been privileged to work with are colleagues you know that that i got to know um and, and got to work with and and whether that's tom hanks or andrew lincoln or you know marsha gay harden or andre Brower man I, I i make a practice of counting my blessings yeah. and i think that's a I think it's a good thing to do because if you don't make a practice of that, you will, I've discovered, make a practice of counting things that piss you off. Yeah. You know, your your brain will catalog stuff to be PO'd about, you know, and angry about if you're not actually going, no, 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 no. Let's just put that aside. Unless you're actually counting your blessings, which actually, ah, huh, I can actually feel my my uh you know. My blood pressure decrease when i do it <laughs> i don't know if it's some kind of zen practice i have no idea what it is it's just something i've developed to go yeah i've had a lot of disappointments in that career and a lot of things went wrong And there's a lot of heartbreak and a lot of but look at all of this look at all this stuff look at the letter you got from the guy who saw shawshank and decided not to commit suicide yeah but turned his life around and lost 300 pounds and went back to went back to school You know, look at the, look at the way that that story, you were a conduit from Stephen King to this person who really needed to hear that story at that point in their life. And it actually, it actually affected them in a positive way. So on days when I find myself getting all huffy about, you know, what a crappy place Hollywood is and how how awful the business is, I start thinking about those things instead. And I start thinking about what it was like at two o'clock in the morning when I couldn't convince Tom Hanks to go home on a Friday because he <laughs> wanted, because he wanted to be there for his fellow actors to do off camera lines. Cause he didn't want to be that guy who like disappears halfway through the scene, you know, or I think about just the incredible levels of commitment and, and, and love that the, yeah you know your your actors will show for one another in the best of circumstances and they really do um or the or the levels of commitment you know or the pride taken by some of the crafts people that you privilege to work with you know
2: yeah. uh well, there's always ying for for all the yang you yeah the yin for every yang yeah. do you think it was probably the the Long drawn out process that of Walking Dead and those issues that soured you on going back to the the bashing your head against the wall.
3: Yeah, well that you know that didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> you know, under the heading of no good deed goes unpunished, go ahead, create a multi billion dollar success for somebody and then have them stab you in the back and try not to you know and do everything they possibly can to uh, undervalue that and uh, uh, so they don't have to pay you. Right um uh, you know anything of of profits but that we're not going to get too far into that because No, the- I
2: don't want to get into that but I do want to get into the yeah. frustrations of of what the business end of being a creator well, can be and yeah, how well, frustrating it can be yeah. to in trying to maintain a vision that becomes a huge success and then <laughs> to be blockaded from it.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was all money. It was always money. I had I had ideas for that show that I was desperate to try, but it was like, no, uh-uh, no, we're not going to give you, we're not going to give you any extra resources to do that. Uh, we're not going to give you any extra resources to make things easier for your cast and your crew in the second season. You know, buy a few more days of shooting, maybe, or a few more days of rest. Yeah, you know that those, those things are are frustrating. But then you know, but then there's the other frustration, which is uh, uh, after that I went and did um, a series for TNT. I created a series for TNT, yeah, um, called Mob City, and it was based very loosely based on a a, a wonderful nonfiction book called La Noir.
2: Right, and you're uh, a huge film noir fan.
3: I'm a huge film noir fan, so I thought. Okay, this is my chance to really roll around in the wonderful sandbox of film noir. So I went in and just started coming up with every film noir idea I could. Yeah. And we did 6 episodes and you and we just busted our asses and it yeah. was a wonderful experience and beautiful stuff creatively. Wonderful. I got to work with John Burnthal again, who's like a brother. Uh, I got to work with, with uh, uh, Milo um, and uh, oh God, everybody in the cast uh, right now I'm, I'm picturing all their faces and none of their names. This is, you know what? <laughs> I was you're pretty, on the
2: spot. That's I happens. was,
3: I was crappy with names even when I was younger. It's not, uh, it's not or, or onset dementia. Um <laughs> Everybody. And I got to work with Jeff DeMunn again, you know, all the people that I, that I just, I loved that cast and I loved the storytelling we were doing. And so you bust your ass, everybody busts their ass for a solid year and then doesn't find its audience.
2: Yeah. TNT just burned it off. They didn't know what to do with it.
3: They didn't know what to do with it. Uh, Michael Wright, who was running TNT, who greenlit it. I didn't realize he was one foot out the door. Uh, when he did green light it and it was fully out the door once it was you know once it went, right about the time it aired. Um yeah they really didn't know what to do with it and they uh uh consequently we didn't find the audience to justify shooting any more of it. So we did six great episodes. Um and they were aired I don't know once. Yeah. So there's the so there's the other thing, you know all it, within
2: two weeks too
3: everybody's goodwill could be there, but then maybe they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Maybe they don't, you know, maybe the guy who really believed in it is gone now and they don't want his thing to be a success that he greenlit. Yeah. You know, they'd rather just burn it off and that happens. And suddenly, Oh, there's another year of my life.
2: Yeah. There's
3: another, you know, bit of mileage on my back, you know, the, the, you know, the, the tread, the tire tread on my head, you know, <laughs> like, run over like roadkill. You know, um, yeah, we got to do great work. Nobody really saw it. So, yeah. there's that.
2: So, All you can do is the best work as a creator that you can do. And then it's in the hands of other people.
3: It's in the hands of other people and it's in the hands of fate as well. Because even if they want to kill it, sometimes something is successful in spite of everybody's efforts. You know, uh, I've seen things where, you know, they tried to kill it, but they couldn't (laughs) because they loved it too much and vice versa. Um, Yeah, there there are always
2: surprise successes that come out of nowhere.
3: That's right. So there I am in the last couple of months of editing on Mob City and um, my C7 ruptured. Uh, I had a badly herniated disc. It ruptured. Oh. It was like somebody stabbed a ice pick into my back and wouldn't pull it out. Mm. But every time I moved, they'd grind it around. I've never felt pain like that. And it took a while for them to get the MRI and da, 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 ba, da, right. ba, meanwhile, I'm waiting on, on the damn effects house to give me my last few effect shots. Mm-hmm. They're waiting till the last possible minute. Yeah. So yeah, two months of this pain and I finally put the show to bed and then I went straight to the hospital to get a, an artificial disc replacement, two of them actually. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, by then, every time I'd burned out prior to that, I, I always, I always say, I'm at the end of my rope. I can't possibly, Oh, there's another job. Okay. Let me get started on that. You know, yeah. when I was at the end of my rope, when I was brunette. I'd work through it. I'd push through it. I was like Rocky, man. Like I said, I was like a machine. Yeah. But I finally got to the point where I couldn't machine it anymore. I couldn't. I couldn't Rocky it. There was nothing left in me to go. You know, running up the steps. And yeah. so <laughs> was Mob... Oh, Mob City was the one that that. Yeah, that I said I can't work this. I can't work like this again. I can't yeah. work this hard anymore, for results that are you know. It's, it's, you know, it's either successful uh, in which they, you know, they want to, they, they suddenly don't want to know you, or it's not successful, in which case they, you know, nobody, <laughs> nobody wants to know you. So, so can uh,
2: you put your finger on how the industry has changed in the last 30 years?
3: Mick, if we could, if we could define this, because I have, I have been wondering that myself, and I'm not alone there's a bunch of us with gray hair, <laughs> either on our, in our beards or on our heads who are going, what, how, what's going on here? I, I remember running into Rob Reiner, on, uh, just bumping into him one day. And uh, <laughs> I said, Rob, do you know what the hell's going on in this business? He goes, no, not no, not a clue. <laughs> We're all shrugging going, it used to be there was a place you could go. And there was somebody to make a creative decision, you know, there was somebody who's was kind of willing to put their, you know, their, their reputation, their job on the line to to help you get a movie made because they believed in it. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. There's, I'm not even sure how it works anymore, but I will tell you this. I will tell you this. I spent last year writing a script that I, I know when I'm hitting on all cylinders and when I'm not. I was hitting on all cylinders. It's a very, very meaningful script, and it was the best thing I've ever done. My wow. wife said it. I believe it. I said it. That's um,
2: saying something.
3: It was. It's a magnificent. It's a magnificent project. That's based on a Stanley Kubrick treatment that he wrote in the late '50s. Uh, uh, an incredible Civil War piece, um, and um, I finish that script. And I was, and I said, this is the best thing I've ever done. And uh, we uh, shopped it around town and we didn't get a single meeting, not even a single meeting on it. Wow. So when you devote the better part of a year to a screenplay that you think is the best thing you've ever done, and you're willing to go back out on the firing line and put the the effort into making the movie and you can't even get a meeting you can't like literally I didn't get a single we didn't get a single meeting on it. And Ridley Scott, by the way, was one of the producers on it.
2: Oh my God. But it's
3: not just, it's not just me, you know, Schmuck, you know, living up north recluse, you know, it's it's Ridley Scott was a producer on it. It was based on Stanley Kubrick, a Stanley Kubrick idea and treatment that he, that he was developing with with Shelby Foote, a noted Civil War historian. Right. Couldn't, couldn't get a meeting on it. There, cause they're because what Mick, what are they making? We, you're there you're, yeah. you're you're in it more Later. than i am they're making the movie. superhero movies they're yeah. making marvel they're, movies. they're yeah. making marvel movies they're making they're making things for the 12 year old comic book collectors
2: yeah are oh, they making like, any
3: movies anymore really for i mean the last movie that i saw that i thought was a masterpiece um that i was shocked didn't get best Picture. Um, was um 1917? I thought that was oh, unbelievable! A, an incredible cinematic. But do movies matter anymore, Mick? Here's my here's my thesis. Let's get people writing in. I want to I want to hear what everybody thinks. <laughs> yes, on, let's and, do then, it. and then we'll, and then we'll get to the book and get to Tyson. But do movies matter like they used to? I think if 1917 had come out in the 80s or the 90s. That would have been like the movie that everybody would have been talking about for the, for the for the whole year. Now unbelievable. Yeah. I don't know that movies matter much anymore. My thesis is this: it was the art form, the art form of the 20th century. But now in the 21st century, it's just another venue for distraction. It's one of a thousand different ways that. The public and the, the audience can distract themselves
2: there are so many platforms that offer that and mostly it's through tv series or you know netflix will make a movie like mank that never could have been made theatrically that i think is a terrific movie mm. black and white hollywood history very specific audience that you could not find in a movie theater but you can find on netflix yeah but that's really an exception. They're really looking for series and the like. And um, it, it is a very splintered industry. You can find good stuff there, but you have to look for it.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you can find good stuff. Absolutely. I mean, there's some stuff, you know, a lot of good writing uh, fled the country and emigrated to television. Yeah, you know, that's where so much great writing wound up, uh, you know, Vince Gilligan's shows uh being jewels in the crown of great television writing, for example, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Um, you know, so much really great writing like went to TV. But you know what? There used to be three networks and some and a handful right. of little local stations. Now it's 10,000 stations. <laughs> it's it's 10,000. Every- it's like. There's so much, you know, what happens when you, when you just keep printing money, it <laughs> loses its value. It yeah. stops actually having the value that it used to, you know, uh, Germany in the Weimar uh, days, you know, you get a barrel of, uh, of, of Deutsche Marks and couldn't get a, uh, you know, a loaf of bread. Cause there's, it just got devalued to the point where it didn't matter anymore. I wonder with, T- t- tweeting and texting and facebooking and and instagramming and ba ba bah- bah- and uh, and, ga- and games, uh, video games and and the the t- the t- t- the Spotify's and the you know this massive of yeah. tsunami of content. Is it possible for anything to really? Really count anymore to really be
2: to make a cultural difference
3: and make a cultural difference to be that thing that people hold dear 20 years later, like people seem to be holding Shawshank dear, or where like the way we held Casablanca and Wizard of Oz dear. You know, is it possible or are we now just part of all the noise?
2: Yeah, well, that, it's like, can there be another Beatles? You no, know, can, yeah, can a musical group have a social impact in the way that the Beatles did around the world. I don't see that happening. It's music is transitory right now. Yeah. And although,
3: al- in- although if I may, if I may, um, you know, at the risk of, um, I don't want to run our time out. We can, we can go over an hour. Can't we? Sure. Cause we, I mean, we could talk for the next three days. I think uh, <laughs> uh, music m- meaning a lot to me, uh, you mentioned the Beatles. They're, they're, you know, here we go. Here they are. Ladies and gentlemen, The Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's Beatles stuff all over my office because I love them so much. And their impact was so huge, but, and I don't generally find modern things that delight me, but I have found somebody, I'd love to make a plug for some, for, for somebody that I have no, you know, fiduciary interest in at all I, I i'm not part of i'm not their agent or anything i'm just a sure. huge fan i got i got the, let's see let's see ah but oh by the way acdc's new album
2: oh there you go steve king are you listening yeah. this
3: is yeah and this one's for mal malcolm young who passed away they're incredible right. one of the young brothers they're incredible rhythm guitarist um I also realized I didn't have a copy of Highway to Hell, so I ordered that too.
2: But um, <laughs> on vinyl, of course.
3: oh of course. Of course. I, I've got I've got some digital, you know, I've got a pretty good digital library too, but mostly it's vinyl because I'm because I'm just that old and cranky. You're a classicist. Um, there's I am a classicist. There is a group that I have, and you will discover them if you go down the rabbit hole of all their YouTube videos. Uh-huh. You will be so happy. And the reason I brought them up and thank you for allowing me to take a little detour here. I love them so much. Their name is. Pomplamoose.
2: Oh, I have heard them. Which
3: is, uh, which is, too. which is French for grapefruit.
2: Yes, it is indeed.
3: And there is uh, in fact, their videos are amazing. They're so wonderful. They're so wonderful. This is an album that she did of, uh, she speaks fluent French. She's not from there but she's like a speaks like a native and she did a lot of classic french pop songs on this album they're doing some really quirky wonderful stuff but the thing that i oh and then then she's got her own her solo albums. she's married to jack conti who is a musician and an entrepreneur and he's the actually the ceo of uh, patreon they started oh, wow. this thing where artists can actually be supported by their fan base, which I think is genius. It it it, it connects the artist, whatever that is, yep. uh, with the uh uh with the the, the, the
2: consumer. Yeah. The
3: consumer, yeah, or teachers with students. Uh when the pandemic first happened, I, I went online. I always wanted to start doing watercolors. So I, I got a couple of watercolor teachers on that on that website. Anyway, she's married to Jack Conti. Natalie Dunn. She's also done some solo albums and the the music they're doing is absolutely delightful. And the thing that you will discover if you go and check them out on, uh, on YouTube online is their joy in doing the music, their joy, whether it's a cover or one of their original things, that joy, it kind of reminds me of the Beatles. Yeah, And they've got some incredible young musicians that work with them all the time. And when they are doing what they do, you sense this palpable joy. So they're bringing some joy into the world and I'm a huge fan and I'm not that, you know, like I say, there's not a lot of modern music that, 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 that grabs me, but I, I just wanted to praise. Them the I the just, one. I, well, just love them. I love them.
2: Speaking of bringing joy, despite, what's going on in Hollywood and mm-hmm. how your most recent experiences have gone. You have brought tremendous joy in so many ways, in very lasting ways. And you need to know that. And And I think this book is really chronicling some of the greatest work that you've done here in a very special way. And Tyson, as the editor of the book, what were the conversations with Frank like? And what did you want to achieve <laughs> with this book?
1: Oh, okay. Uh, what I what I wanted to do uh, was to present these the two screenplays in the in the best light possible, and to bring everything uh, that was that we could from behind the scenes things, uh, the s- storyboards, uh, Frank's essay on on what got left out of, of Shawshank. Uh, to bring everything that was in the two previously published volumes of the individual screenplays, and then to add even more. Part of it was Barry's suggestion to get uh, uh, tributary essays uh, from yourself, from uh, and f- from uh, Josh Boone, and uh, he'd already talked to R.C. Matheson, whom I've known for a long time, into doing an introduction, uh, and then from there, he let me go on and and select some people that that I knew uh, that could contribute things, um, including Steve Spignesi, who's another king expert uh, and uh, a good friend of mine uh, that I met on the set of the Green Mile, Constantine Nasser. Uh, yeah, I know who, uh, who I found out after I'd been given mm-hmm. the 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 editorship of this project, I found out that he had tried to get it as well. And I felt really guilty because with his position in Hollywood and and making all the behind the scenes documentaries, he probably could have done it as, as good or, be, or a better job than I did because he had more access or easier access to people, uh, which was one of the reasons I really wanted him to contribute something. And I think he contributed a, a fantastic essay. It may be the best thing in the book uh, that amazing. wasn't written by Frank. And uh, but Frank and I corresponded a lot via email. Um, but uh, this is the first time we've actually spoken to each other and seen each other's uh,
2: faces
1: (laughs) since I was since my last day on the green mile set in North Carolina. Um, Uh. And if I could, could go back to that, uh, Frank was talking about, about how projects change uh, as they're being, as they're being filmed. Uh, One of my, the most vivid memories I have, I think it was a Thursday night or maybe a Friday night, uh, we were up in the in the woods on a hill, by the set for the shack where old Mr. Jingles is living out his retirement days, and it, word was circulating around as the light was was beginning to fade, that hey, if we can put if we can get all this in the can tonight, we can finish up a day early. And and I think I remember, and I think Constantine has a quick shot of it in uh, his long-form documentary that's on the 15th anniversary Blu-ray. Uh, the documentary is almost as long as the movie. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Frank was sitting on a tree stump with a copy of the script and a pencil, and was going through and and tightening it and eliminating stuff and and trying to get it so that that they could wrap up shooting that night and be done a day early and it was just watching on the spot in the middle of nowhere uh, changing the thing so it was it was was adapting on the way and and it did get done and everybody finished up a day early uh.
2: well not everybody injects as much heart into the projects as you do Frank and that's oh, an okay. example of it as someone uh, who has tired of banging his head against the wall. What do you want this book to represent for you, Frank?
3: Well, first, I guess before I before we start talking about me again, um, I, I gotta I gotta really hand it to uh to Barry Hoffman and Tyson and Dara Hoffman. Uh boy, they really if you love this book, it's because they poured their hearts and souls into it. I mean, I, I you know I contributed the the two screenplays, I'd made them look as pretty as, as I possibly could um, for the reader. And I contributed uh, an introduction. They did everything else. Um, yeah, you know,
2: Barry and Gauntlet published my first book as well.
3: Well, there you go. And you know what that kind of, uh, you know, when they really care, it's like any it's like anything. When when the people doing it really care, it really winds up being something special. And um, they really cared and really went for for one thing you know they were so patient in waiting for me to deliver what i needed to <laughs> deliver uh and there was a certain amount of drudgery and time involved in that for me so uh they i think they waited a little longer than they than they had hoped um but then they'd have another idea they'd say can you know what do you think of this and i go go with it you know, I didn't want to micromanage this at all. I wanted, I wanted this, this is really more their book than it is mine is what I'm saying. And they did a great job. And I'm really, uh, again, back to my theme of gratitude. I'm very grateful for, for the, for the love and the effort that they put into this thing. Um, and what what a lovely thing going back to your question.
2: Ah, there's this,
3: there's this really, there's a special thing. I've got like two of, you know, the two, Two of the movies that actually did turn out right, you know, some of the time in the Hollywood that wasn't miss misspent in my youth. Uh, you know, things turned out OK. And well, be- there's
2: so much to look back on from working with George Lucas on Young Indiana Jones, oh, working yeah. so often with Stephen King, Rob Reiner. Um, and so many people, what stands out to you? When when you look back at these accomplishments, whether they were successful or not, what really stands out to you in a life in the cinema?
3: Boy, that's a big question. Yeah. (laughs) That's That's
2: why I asked it last.
3: (laughs) Wow, that's a big question. Um, I think what stands out for me is I got to do a few special things that that really seem to matter to people, at least the people that it matters to. It really does seem to matter to them. It, it's 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 helped them along somehow their journey. Like if, like there were some movies that helped me along, um, but on but on the on the most personal level of it, I would say. I got to work with some amazing people. I know that's going back to what I said before. I got to work with some wonderful people, not just talented people, but really great people. Um, And, you know, uh, they, there's very few, there's very few sour apples in that bunch. You know, Mm -hmm. there's very few that I would say, Boy, I wish I hadn't had to deal with that person Um, or boy that person was incompetent or incapable or or lazy or whatever no. There's a few you know, but I mean it's like dust in my palm, you know the rest is is just I had such a. vast array of blessings in working with the people that I got to work with and, um, you know, working with Steven. So are you kidding me? I got to work with Steven Spielberg, you know, yep. I got to write some world war II stuff for Steven Spielberg. Come, are you kidding me? Um, and talk about a movie that turned out really well. Uh, you've worked with Steven, you know, what a pleasure. Yeah, it's the best. Um, Um, you know, and I got to work with, with, with Hanks and you know what, I, I'd love to go back and still do a few more things. You know, Mm -hmm. I just don't want to get caught up in that, I don't want to get caught up in that hellish hamster wheel of I've got a Hollywood career. Oh my God, I got to get the next job. I got to get the next job in. I got to get the next deadline. I got to get the next, Oh, let's be in development forever. You know, (laughs) let's, let's just keep running on that wheel and never have anything happen. That's, that's the thing I hate. That's the thing that makes me nauseous to think how much time uh, was was taken you know uh but what i'd love to but i'd love to do i'd love to do you know i I was talking to greg nicotero about this um who's a hell of a guitar player now by the way he and and robert rodriguez both are like are you kidding me robert's
2: amazing yeah yeah
3: These like pro musician level stuff anyway i was talking to talking to greg and, and i just said you know what i he said I just want to work with my friends now. Yeah. I said, I, you know what? Me too. And I guess what that means, how that applies, how that's actionable is I just want to work with people who are, are kind and positive and on the same page. And some of the people I've worked with in the past, a lot of the people I've worked with in the past um, are that. You know, that's they're on that list of, you know, I feel like they're professionally speaking, there's this vast extended family that I've been a you know, a part of. I'd love to work with them again, especially those who are my true close friends, like Greg yeah. Nicotero, yeah. um, you know, or 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 John Bernthal, or you know, those those folks. Um, I just want to work with my friends. I don't want to deal with the with the development thing, I don't want to deal with the ugliness. I don't want to deal with you know lawyers and and um, yeah, you know. Isn't lawyers.
2: it nice that you don't have to anymore?
3: Yeah, it it really is nice. It really is nice. And and uh, the
2: greatest achievement an artist can make is communicating with the audience. In a way that's incredibly personal. And the letters that you've talked about getting, you've achieved that with your movies and with your art. And I think that's something that allows you to hold your head very, very high. Oh,
3: well, thank you. I got, I got lucky. I got lucky. I got lucky a few times, um, but really lucky.
2: Lucky uh, well. and talented it's a good combination
3: hey you know all you got to do is you can find an an amazing world-class storyteller and convince him to let you take some of his you know stories
2: and do (laughs) it well
3: and you too
2: you too (laughs) could be
3: uh could have a career you know stealing somebody else's story (laughs) well i gotta we gotta thank steve too i mean really at the end at the end of the day you and me both yeah none, none of it really that at least for me none of it really would exist without steve king yeah um and these he incredible st- exist, you know, he's- <laughs> yeah these incredible stories that he told and his generosity and letting some of us partake in his world you know step into his world and wear his shoes for a little bit
2: it's a pretty rarefied place and a yeah. wonderful God place to, to live God well frank him. Thank you so much. And Tyson, thank you for uh, facilitating this book. And uh, just always great talking to you, Frank. And I can't wait to see what you do next.
3: Oh, well, thank you. I might, I don't know. We might uh, go rescue a few more chihuahuas. We've got five. There you go. Uh, we might uh, do a little, you know, stuff.
2: You know. And you, you'll you will uh, get to play lead guitar.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anytime soon. <laughs> But I I could strum a few chords. That's about it.
2: There you go. Well, you can beat (laughs) rhythm guitar like Steve King in the rock bottom
3: remainder. That's right.
2: Well, thank you, Frank. Thank you, Tyson. And it's just a total pleasure to catch up with you again.
3: It's so good to see you again, pal.
1: Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.